Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. This week, we learn about poetry in Nevada and meet Nevada's first poet laureate in over 50 years. After that, we hear from reporter Daniel Rothberg about negotiations to cut water use for states along the Colorado River. At the end of the show, I sit down with our new DC reporter, Gabby Birenbaum, to talk about the Nevada delegation and what to expect from DC after the midterms. I'm here with Gail Marie Pumeyer, the Nevada Poet Laureate. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Joey, for having me. Yeah, and so to start off, I just want to know, what is the poet? What what is a poet laureate? All right, that's actually a marvelous question, and it should be one that is simple to answer, and it's really just not. Here in Nevada, I think we're still figuring it out because we really hadn't had an official poet laureate for about 50 years. So we're starting to look at what can be done, what communities would really like to have some sort of literary arts programming, what kind of projects can we do that would intrigue and engage and satisfy the interests of Nevadans statewide, okay, north, south, Tonopah, all the way across the state. So we're still trying to figure it out, but essentially, I guess a skinny, skinny answer might be that the Poet Laureate is a um, writer, (laughs) but usually someone who identifies as a poet who is committed to the community in which they work and is interested in reaching out to citizens of that community to engage them in literacy programs and the arts in general, but primarily the literary arts. So are you just writing poems for the state generally, or are you kind of more of a representative of the state for the arts community? Or I like the term ambassador. I think I'm an ambassador of the literary arts. One of the things that when I accepted the position, I noted to the Arts Council staff, and before I go any further, I want to say that nothing would happen without the excellent people at the Nevada Arts Council. But I did tell them, I said, hey, y'all, I need to be a practicing poet. And I'm less likely to engage in what one might call a commissioned piece than I am to continue doing the work that engages me. But what I am doing is we established a program for Nevadans called the Nevada Poetry Project. And the specific title is Nevadan to Nevadan, What I Need to Tell You. And this is an epistolary poetry project, which is just a fancy way of saying letter poems. So we're encouraging people to submit poems in the form of letters which I think takes some of the pressure off because someone doesn't have to think about a rhyme scheme or line breaks and and some of the other more conventional craft elements. We have had, Joey, over 50, and probably by the time this airs, maybe 100 Mm -hmm. submissions to the project from all over the state. Las Vegas, West Wendover, Carson City, Reno, Garrington. They're coming in from all over the state, and they're amazing. And I think what amazes me most is the risk that many of these writers are taking, because in the guidelines, we stressed you don't have to 
think about craft so much. You don't have to identify as a practicing poet, but you do have to tell a story. And you have to tell a story using your authentic voice. And that's what we're seeing. And it's amazing. Okay, so it's like all of these threads, all of these voices from throughout the state are coming together and we're making this large literary tapestry. So how did you end up getting appointed as the, you're, you're, is an appointed position as the Poet Laureate? It is an appointed position. The governor, Sisolak, appointed me in late fall of last year. So something like late September, early October of 2021. But I didn't really get started, Joey, until January because I was in the throes of my very last semester teaching at UNR. And a lot was going on. And that was a 38-year gig. So I taught at UNR for 38 years, and I miss my students and I miss the workshops profoundly. But I'll tell you what, getting out into the communities here and talking to people and conducting the occasional workshop with citizens of our state has kind of satisfied that longing. So yeah, I feel like I really didn't get started until this year. And then we didn't really officially kick off the project until late spring, early summer. But we are on a roll. So get your poem in. <laughs> we, we've talked about kind of you're the face of this project and everything. What, what does the day-to-day look like? Well, my day-to-day varies day-to-day. I'll be <laughs> honest about that. There is a modest stipend mm-hmm. from the State of Nevada Arts Council for this position, which essentially covers it, what supplies I might need. And I ordered pencils <laughs> so that I could bring them out in the community. And they actually say on the pencil, Nevadan to Nevadan. So they're pencils that sort of represent the project. It also covers some travel. We also have enough in the budget that we were able to commission a professional theater artist. And our culminating event will be a reader's theater performance based on the submissions to the project. And right now we are scheduled to do that in early June at the Oats Park Art Center in Fallon. And that will be filmed and distributed throughout the state. So we've talked about being a poet laureate, but I want to know a little bit more about you too. And I want to know how you got into poetry. How did you become a poet? I don't know. There's no job application that's, you know, apply to become a poet, except for in the poet laureate position, apparently, <laughs> kind of. But how did you, how did you get into poetry? Well, I, as an, I was an undergraduate writing major at Southern Illinois University with the goal of being a fiction writer. All right. Primarily short stories. I've never, never, I I much admire my novel writing brethren, but I have never had any ambition to write a novel. But I loved writing short stories. And in order to graduate with an undergraduate degree in creative writing, we had to take second genre. And so I thought, well, heck, I'm going to take poetry. How hard can that be? I'll ace that class. And I went into it with that attitude. I had a young professor, Jim Paul. It was his first teaching position. And um, I got busted. I guess I got, this is the quick version. And the students turned on me. They realized I came in with an attitude that somehow I knew more about writing than a poet. And suddenly 
I, I didn't want to fail. And so I just threw myself into the study of poetry and poetics. And I got seduced by the magic of storytelling in a condensed form. So it changed my life. And so when I went to pursue my MFA in creative writing, I chose the, a program in, in poetry. What do you like to write about in your poems? I think this is probably connected to that original impulse to write short stories. I am a narrative poet through and through. I am a storyteller in my work. So I'm interested in character. The writer Harry Cruz wants to find literature as people doing the best they can with what they've been given to do it with. And that's, I took that to heart. And so I'm really interested in writing about characters that might not be heard otherwise. I don't wanna, I don't wanna say the lost, but those that don't often become central characters in some of the, the literature that we seem to admire. Originally, I'm an Ozarks girl, raised in St. Louis, but really a country girl from birth and family. And I, I want those people heard. So I'm, I'm really interested in women's voices, working class voices, rural voices, um, stories of character. How important is poetry to the mythology and the history of the West, right? You hear about cowboy poetry a lot. I mean, I've got the Cowboy Poetry Festival out in, in Elko in, in January, but, but how important is poetry to the identity of the West out here? Well, I think poetry is important to the identity of the world and, of course, to any particular region. But many people I know, working Nevadans, have complicated lives. And we all have busier lives than we had even 25 years ago. I mean, social media, I'm also guilty of this, sucks up sometimes more than I want to confess the number of hours a day, but it'll just suck us dry and we're so busy. So I, I think poetry allows us to enter the world of another and to engage with language that is beautiful, perhaps startling, but certainly meaningful in small doses, right? So, I mean, you can, you can read a poem while you're stirring your spaghetti sauce. You can't do that with a novel. And then you can put it down and think about it while you're having dinner and then come back and read it again. And if it's a really good poem, it's going to be so layered that every time you come back, you'll see something new in it. And I think that's kind of what the West is like. The sky is never the same. The landscape seems to change sometimes in, in really sort of subtle and unnerving ways, particularly when we're out in the desert. So I, I think poetry is really Poetry might be the literary genre of the American West. Do you think you could share some of your own poetry with us? I will definitely read a poem for you. All right, cool. This is from my book, Rural Lives of Nice Girls. And the reason I chose to read this, Joey, is because it is about a Nevada story. So here we go. It's called Homegrown Roses. Everyone has a story to tell that's set inside a bar. 
I remember the long year I loved a boy from school, how every day at five o'clock we met at George's lounge, how we became familiar, the aging lady bartender calling out in her clear voice, Miller and a Miller light, before that big door eased shut behind us. I also recall being conscious of the clock, how in the world of the tavern you are always alive in the future, even if it's only ten or fifteen minutes, long enough to know the baseball game you're watching is behind you, that if you hope hard enough your team can still score, there's time and plenty of it. Imagine, too, one chilled summer night when I was young and fleeing my first divorce, found myself at the end of the trail in Dayton, Nevada. I met a man who bought me drinks, who fed the jukebox till I thought it would burst, held me close enough to hear his heart. I don't remember when we decided to pretend. This is a bar story, after all. But we told the other patrons, four tired cowboys and a black-eyed woman, that we'd just been married. This was our honeymoon, and we were happy. One of the cowboys wandered outside, broke a rose from a battered bush, placed it in a beer bottle, a gift for the bride. I still have it. And now, every year or so, when I return to my truck in the dark after work, I find a single rose anchored under the wiper. My friends think I should be afraid of this, as if this flower were a dead chicken or a stalker's signature. But it's just a rose, and all it means is that I'm forever joined to a man who'll never know my real name, a man I couldn't possibly pick out in a crowd. Now it's your turn. Tell me one of your stories. All right, Gail Marie, well, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast, and hopefully we'll hear more of your poems soon. Thank you so much, Joey. And I wasn't kidding. Get those submissions to the Nevada Poetry Project, all of you. Thank you so much. Jacob, have you ever written any poetry? Absolutely not. <laughs> you, don't, you don't consider your stories on our site to be a type of poetry? Uh, no, but I do consider them art. <laughs> Good. Well, you also write uh, for our newsletter, Soundcheck, which I think would be considered poetry. <laughs> yes, Joey, I do write uh, reviews for various media projects that I think are pretty funny, objectively. <laughs> good, good, good. Well, if you like newsletters, you can subscribe to Soundcheck. But we also have another newsletter about the environment called Indie Environment, and it comes out every other Thursday. That's right. And next up, Joey talks to the author of said newsletter, Daniel Rothberg who's been following the continuing crisis along the Colorado River as the drought in the Southwest continues and Lake Mead water levels drop. Alrighty, well, I am here with our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and, and we're going to be talking about something that is 
has been in the news and continues to be in the news and continues to be a really big deal, which is the Colorado River and the drought and, and kind of the, the water shortage that we're facing here in the Southwest. There's been a growing concern of water levels in the Colorado River as a drought continues here. And the demand for water is high with large populations in places like Las Vegas and Phoenix and LA. And so the states that pull from the Colorado River meet and negotiate and they need to figure out cuts for this water usage from the Colorado River. So how have those meetings been going? There's no question there is a crisis on the Colorado River, and it's nerve-wracking, honestly, as you know, someone from a state that's one of the Colorado River states reporting on this. The seven states have been negotiating for the past years since June to cut water usage. The federal government recognizing the dramatically low levels of stored water in the two largest reservoirs on the Colorado River system, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, told the seven basin states and all the water users in the Colorado River Basin that there was a need for significant cuts in the short term to stabilize the system and prevent truly catastrophic effects from taking place. The Colorado River supports about 40 million people in the Southwest, all told. It provides the water for much of our agriculture in this country. So far, the states have not been able to come to a voluntary agreement on how to make those cuts because they are so significant. They're really unprecedented in scale. At the same time, the federal government has initiated a process to take potentially mandatory unilateral action to prevent the system from going into what I would essentially describe as freefall. The current operating rules for the Colorado River, they're expiring in 2026, and, and they need to renegotiate those before 2026 because, you know, we're kind of in such a dire state right now, right? Is there concern that Every day that goes by that we're not renegotiating these, the, the situation is getting worse, right? What is the timeline that they actually kind of need to figure this stuff out by? It's a really good question. I think there was a lot of hope that there would be some kind of agreement and, and a universal sort of settlement well before the end of this year. I think the initial deadline that the federal government set out was for mid-August. And the reason that is is because about 80% of the Colorado River is used for agriculture. If you think about what goes into an irrigation operation, you are talking about planning well ahead of the time you're going to get the water. So there was kind of a hope that this would be done well before that planning process began to give water users a, a level of certainty about what they would have for next year and the state's level of certainty. That did not really happen. And so now we're in December. And there is a lot of uncertainty. Now, there are going to be adjustments likely to the way that the river is operated next year, but it's unclear exactly when those decisions will be made. The potential action that the federal government will take, you have to do an environmental analysis and you have to get comments and do scoping and hear from different groups. So that process is underway. I don't want to give the impression that these cuts are the same for everybody. At the end of the day, Nevada has the rights to about 1.8% of all Colorado River entitlements. People are affected by the cuts in different ways. I don't know if you have a sense of this or not, but it, to me, from everything that you've written about and we've talked about today, it, it just doesn't seem like there's going to be a voluntary cut from these states. Do you think that the states do have a chance to actually you know, negotiate and, and voluntarily make these cuts? Yeah, I think we have to see how the next couple of months play out. In addition to the kind of mandatory track that the federal government has started down, the federal government also put out requests for proposals 
to voluntarily conserve water and receive compensation for voluntary reductions in water use. The scale of the cutbacks that are needed, it's a question of whether that will be enough to get us there. Another drought year is going to be really, really significant. So you mentioned an interesting number, which is that Nevada has 1.8% of the entitlements to the Colorado River. And, 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 and so if we voluntarily cut our use, I mean, it's still a, that's a pretty small amount. And so, you know, I guess I'm curious that is Nevada kind of at the mercy of the states with bigger allocations like California and, and, and Arizona? Nevada is in an in a interesting position because it is the most water secure out of the lower basin states in many ways. Nevada has the physical infrastructure to pull water from Lake Mead from its third intake and pumping station when no water can pass through the Hoover Dam. Like if Lake Mead got so low that no water could pass through the Hoover Dam, Nevada could still pull water out of Lake Mead. And that gives it a lot of security physically that other states don't have. That said, Nevada has a really big role to play, especially if you look at, you know, population projections for Las Vegas. It's all about conservation. I think John Ensminger, the general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, put it well when I interviewed him, which is that there are kind of three options here. There's negotiation, there's litigation, and there's legislation. And negotiation, he argued, is the pathway that would provide all the water users potentially with the most certainty. The issue now is we're talking about sharing shortage on a much larger level so if we don't cut back on water use, right, if we continue to use the water that we're using today and there's no negotiations and the federal government doesn't step in, which is probably not going to happen, we're going to make some sort of cuts at some point, but say it doesn't happen, what what happens to the water? Is it eventually just all dry up and we don't have water down here in the Southwest anymore? I think that it's a very difficult question to answer. What I can say is that increasingly without cuts, the physical reality is catching up very, very quickly to every water user on the Colorado River. And that physical reality is simple math. Far less water is coming into the system than is going out of the system, than is being used. And that deficit is what is creating these shortages. There are all sorts of effects to hydropower in delivering water in a reliable and consistent manner. I'm going to come back to the word. All the water users say, we want certainty. And right now, with the system where it's at, with the potential for the reservoirs to decline even further, there is a ton of uncertainty. So what's next? What are you going to be paying attention to next? Yeah, one thing I'll be watching is to see how the federal government is discussing these issues. Right now, we are in this sort of short-term crisis. But you can't lose sight of the fact that there is also a huge question about how the river is going to be managed for the future. Mm-hmm. And it's a future likely with, with less water, where climate change is having continuing to have a huge impact on the Colorado River Basin. And how, how do we adapt for that? Well, Daniel Rothberg, thank you so much for joining me. You write a newsletter called Indie Environment, which comes out every other Thursday. And you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. And if you sign up, you'll find it in your inbox as well. So, Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Joey.
Well, from the west to the east coast, we are jumping all the way across America three hours ahead to D.C. to meet our new reporter covering the U.S. delegation from Nevada. Gabby Bierenbaum has just started with us here at the Indy, and we're going to introduce you to her and get some insight on Capitol Hill after the midterm elections. All right, well, I am here with Gabby Bierenbaum, our brand new DC reporter. Gabby, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I used to do this with our old DC reporter, Humberto, where I always asked how the weather was in DC because it's very different than it is here in Nevada. So I guess I'll start there. How is the weather in DC today? (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I have not been outside today, but (laughs) this week it's been not too bad. It's been like 50s, so a little cold. It's going to get worse. (laughs) Yeah, we're all freezing here in like the 20s and 30s up in Reno. (laughs) So yeah, welcome to the team. You are our new DC correspondent. So to to start off, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? You know, what's your education history? Where did you work before this? How old are you? Sure. Well, hi to all the listeners. I'm Gabby. I'm 23. I'll be 24 in January. I went to Northwestern University out in Chicago where I majored in journalism and political science. So this job is a good combination of both. (laughs) And then before this, I was working as the digital editor at the Washington Monthly, which is like a small magazine, small but mighty, they like to say, in D.C. that does a lot of coverage of kind of niche policy areas. And then before that, I was working at Vox, where I wrote a daily newsletter called Sentences, which was just recapping basically two big stories from politics that day. And then also did a lot of coverage of transportation and infrastructure. That was like during the negotiations for the infrastructure bill. So I ended up learning a lot about transit and rail. So are you from D.C. originally? I am. So this is a bit of a a touchy subject among D.C. people. I'm technically (laughs) from Arlington, Virginia, which is like right over the border. It's the part of Virginia that used to be part of D.C. But I went to high school in the city, so I feel like I have some claim of it. And I live in D.C. now. So I think I think I can say I'm from D.C., but some some true natives might disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nevada also has a very, a very strict policy about, you know, who who can be considered a Nevada and stuff. And I'm still not really sure what if I'm considered. One. <laughs> um, but I, I'm also curious about, you know, your connection to Nevada, if any, you know, how how did you end up kind of deciding to, to cover Nevada from the D.C. angle? I was looking to do more fast paced um type of reporting, more on the ground reporting. I've always wanted a chance to cover Congress. And then to me, Nevada just seems like a really interesting state in that it has like a manageable but important congressional delegation, I think, which we saw with in the midterms with Catherine Cortez Masto being the majority maker. And then I think there's a lot of really interesting sort of political interests that you don't get anywhere else. The influence of the gaming industry, of the mining industry, the importance of tourism, and then the way that Nevada has been, it seems to me, a microcosm for so many national trends. The way COVID hit the economy in Nevada harder than most states. The housing crisis, which I've done a lot of work on previously, and which we see all over the U.S., I know is particularly pertinent in Nevada, where rents have been rising a ton and people are getting priced out. And so I thought all of those things would make Nevada an interesting state to cover. I've only been once when I was a kid. I went to Lake Tahoe and I got sick and my family's (laughs) Russian. And my only really memory is that I was stuck in a van with a bunch of Russian people driving around the entire lake and they spoke Russian the entire time, Um, which I don't speak. So I'm hoping when I go next week for our team retreat that I will make much better memories. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll get to go to Vegas for the first time, right? Yes, which I'm excited about. I'm very curious to see. Uh, people are always kind of shocked by the the the, the slot machines and the airport is always kind of a big one for people visiting for the first time. 
I'm excited to yeah see the casinos and get the whole Vegas experience. <laughs> so what are you looking forward to covering? I think I'm coming at an interesting time as control of the House is about to change extremely narrowly right to Republican hands. So I think we're going to see in terms of policy, we're going to see what can still be done on a bipartisan basis, which will be interesting. And a lot of what I'm interested in is seeing both what Republicans do or are unable to do in the majority in terms of corralling their members, even if Kevin McCarthy is going to become speaker, and just tracking how Mark Amadei, who's the only Republican in the delegation, how he navigates all of that as like a pretty conservative member, but also someone who has stood up to Trump before and is in a very safe seat, which mm. gives him the cover to sort of do what he wants politically. So I'm curious to see how he navigates what I expect to be a pretty tumultuous Republican majority, what his thoughts are on when and if the Freedom Caucus derails legislation, um, and then how much he participates in what I assume are going to be a lot of investigations into the Biden family or other sort of conservative things that get them excited. And then I'm curious to see the Democrats who are now returning to the minority after four years, what kind of messaging bills they want to send. This is a time for those three Democrats in the House to really message to their constituents back home when they're up for election again in two years, what kind of things they're interested in doing. And then policy-wise, I definitely still want to cover housing. I know that that's a priority for Cortez Masto and that she's been interested in low-income housing credits. So I'm curious to see as housing, which has traditionally been a local issue, just becomes more and more of a national crisis, what the federal government does to intervene and how they can sort of incentivize zoning changes and various things in Nevada and across the country. Have you talked to the delegation much yet? Have you kind of gotten to know them at all? I haven't spoken to any of them yet. I'm going to talk to Dina Titus for the first time right after this. And then I'm talking to Susie Lee tomorrow. But I've talked to all of their staff people. So I hope to have strong, productive relationships with them all. And so far, all the staff people have been very helpful. So, All right, Gabby. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And welcome to the team. We're really excited to have you. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more from you on the podcast in the future. Thank you. Well, that's our show for you this week. Thank you for listening. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and of course, my co-host, Jacob Solis. Uh, for the listeners, Joey edited out the word lovely co-host. Anyways, <laughs> if you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.